Good evening. Welcome to our new, new hour of starting, 6 o'clock instead of 6.30. New half hour, I should say. I'm glad everybody was paying attention. <laughs> um, in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're at. If you'll turn there. I guess I better turn there too. Um, we spent a couple weeks now um, on Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae, and we've seen through that the way that he prays for them, the things that he prays for for them, how thankful he is for them as Christians. And we've learned some things about how to pray not only for ourselves, but for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And Paul has ended his explanation of his prayer, because that's what he was doing here in the first part, is he's writing to them, explaining to them how he prays for them. Um, He's ended it by putting a focus again on what the Father had done in terms of salvation, reminding the people that that they had an inheritance laid up for them in heaven, an inheritance that they, they only have a share in. He says they do have a share in it. They only have a share in it because God had qualified them for it through their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And in the, next, in the next couple of verses, Paul gives a, a familiar explanation about how God did that. Uh, and we, we're going to look at the next two verses sort of quickly and then move on to um, verses 15 through 20, which I don't think we'll get through all of that tonight, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, but anyway, let's look, look with me if you would, and we'll start with verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through 20, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to be reconciled to Himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. We thank you for this word that we've read. Lord, how we have such a great account of the identity of our Savior. And Lord, I thank you that we can come together to read about this, to learn about this, and be encouraged by it, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here joining in. We want to glorify you, Lord, in our study time tonight. We ask humbly, Lord, that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit as we read your word. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the main section that 
or where we'll spend most of our time tonight, um, is in those verses uh, from 15 through 20, which, again, we won't get through all of them. But because this is one of the clearest sections of Scripture in all of Scripture about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We learn here so many truths about Jesus and who He is that, that counter so many false teachings about Jesus. And Paul is, is going after that um, in this letter that he writes to Colossae. He takes, Paul slows down here and, and uh, doesn't just assume that people are solid in their understanding about who Jesus is. He though he's taught them before, he doesn't just assume that they're solid in it. He takes this opportunity to bring clarity to what has become confused in the church through false teachers and their false teaching. It's been confused because the heretics of the Gnostic group, they've come in and attacked the humanity of Jesus. They've attacked the deity of Jesus, and they are causing confusion in the church. And of course, as we saw in 1 John, when a person denies the true biblical Jesus, not only do they not have Jesus, they don't have the Father either. Before we get to that, though, let's look at how Paul transitions to the subject of Jesus by establishing the people's standing before God through divine deliverance. Okay, let's look at, again, at verse 13. There it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Well, notice the past tense nature of Paul's statement here. He has delivered us, right? It's already done if a person is in Christ. And he's again identifying his target audience. He's identifying them as saints within the church, those who are Christians. And this deliverance is, is in the spiritual sense, okay, from where the, the people previously resided, um, the domain of darkness, to where they now reside, which is the kingdom of his beloved son. And that word there uh, for domain can also be translated as power or jurisdiction or authority. Okay, so from the power of darkness or the jurisdiction of darkness, they've come. God has brought them. Christians have been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is deliverance, deliverance from death to life, from darkness to light, from being slaves to sin to being slaves of righteousness. And remember, again, this is in a spiritual sense. Clearly, if, we, if this was a physical sense and um, this earth were that domain of darkness, we would no longer be here if this was physical. Okay, this, this world is passing away. And it will someday be destroyed, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And when you were born again, God delivered you. He delivered you out of that. And we do not need to be continually delivered. Okay? He, he didn't just deliver you into a vacuum either. You're not delivered into nothingness. That's why Paul says you were transferred, right? Taken from one place to another. Where did God transfer believers to? The kingdom of his beloved Son. That's an amazing truth. We've been taken from one spiritual realm to another, and not just taken out of something bad, but moved to the ultimate good. Where is the kingdom of his beloved son? In John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And the scripture also tells us that it is God's good pleasure to give us his kingdom, right? Now we also can look back at at last week's lesson regarding our walk or, or our way of life and now see that it must match up with being with the fact that we are now subjects of the king, right? We are his children. In, in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we see uh, Paul exhorting them. He says, we exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so how did God transfer us? Look, look at verse 14, the next verse in our passage. Verse 14, we see that it is through his beloved son. Verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how God accomplished the transfer. Christ paid what we owed. Redemption means uh, delivered by payment of a ransom. Okay, this is it's often used referring to uh, the freeing of slaves from bondage. Right? And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 3, let's look at a passage of scripture there. Romans chapter 3. And listen to the familiar language of Paul's writing here. In Romans chapter 3, starting verse 23, we'll go through verse 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was also it was to show this his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul repeats this in Ephesians 1:7. He says, In him, we're talking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The riches of His grace indeed are great. And what did He do with our sins? What did God do with our sins? Threw them. They're gone, right? Did away with them. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. All of this is done in Him. In who? In Jesus Christ, right? So you see, Paul has dialed in the focus here on Jesus. He's bringing us our attention to Jesus Christ. Now he's going to let loose his pen with great clarity on the person and work of Jesus Christ through all these verses. And if anyone is confused about Christ, anyone Paul has written to here in Colossae or any Christian today, if you're confused about who Jesus Christ is, then pay attention to this section of Scripture. And Paul makes it clear. And the, this next section of text from verses 15 through 20 is where we'll be at. And the Bible is above all else a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We learn in the Old Testament about the need for him, um, about his coming and the preparation for that event. And in the Gospels, we see the manifestation of his coming, 
as God in human flesh to save sinners. And we see the spreading of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles all through the book of Acts through the teaching of the apostles. Then we have the epistles, right, that teach us about how to live as Christians. They teach us what the Christian life should look like and how the church is to behave and how Christ is the head. Again, the focus is Christ. And the Bible ends with our returning Lord Jesus Christ and His reign as King of kings. It's all about Him. And why should we believe the Bible is about Jesus? Why do you think we should believe that? There's several reasons, but can you think of any? Because He's God? Okay. Because He is the Word. All right. Well, and we can't forget, Jesus himself said it's about him, right? Remember what he told the two confused men on the road to Emmaus, right? As they were talking about all the events that have been happening, and Jesus appears with them, and he's walking with them, and he's asking about what they're talking about, and they seem to be confused by him, like, who, who doesn't know this, right? In Luke 24, 25 through 27, this is what Jesus says, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and how and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's Jesus telling these men, the scriptures are about me. And what did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He said in, in John 5, 39 through 40, he's rebuking them. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, what? Bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus again saying, the Scriptures are about him. So a problem existed in Colossae. As, as the problem existed in other churches and as the problem exists today with people who are believing things that are false about Jesus Christ. Others are coming in with teachings that maybe sound plausible to them, but they are not uh, according to the truth of the Word of God. They are not true about Jesus. And I think I asked the question uh, in, in the last study we went through in 1 John, because it was a problem that John was addressing as well, regarding what some of the false beliefs about Jesus were and, and are even in our day today. So I won't ask the question again. I'll just go over some of those things the, about the false teachings about Jesus, that he was perhaps just a prophet or that he was a man but not God. Or he was God but ceased, ceased to be God while he was here on earth. He was not really born of a virgin. Okay? He did not rise from the dead and on and on, right? Constantly an attack on the truth of the Word of God about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's under attack all the time. But why would believing these false teachings about Jesus appeal to religious people in the first place? And you think about our day. Why would believing those things, those false things about Jesus even be appealing? What do you guys think? To make things easier for you? Yeah, I mean, that's perhaps the number one reason. 
right? Because if we don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that frees me up to not have to obey Jesus. Right? I can live how I want to live. We create a God of our own making when we, when we deny the truth about Jesus Christ that we see in the Scriptures. So again, when we read this passage in Colossians, we're reading perhaps the clearest, most definitive statements about who Jesus is and what he's done. And here Paul lays out the truth about Jesus Christ in such a way as to totally refute the false teachings that have come into the church. Right? He, he handles it thoroughly in this section of Scripture. And if people cannot understand who Christ is from reading this text, then they're not paying attention. Or they just refuse, like the Pharisees. Jesus said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Gnostic heretics in Colossae, they denied the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. They felt spirit was good and matter was evil, so Messiah could not be human because a human body was matter and that would make the Messiah evil. So they determined Jesus could not have been the Messiah. They taught that Nothing divine could inhabit a human body either. So if Jesus was human, then he could not have been divine. Hence, they're teaching that Jesus was not God. They attack his deity. And this made it so Jesus could only be some sort of lesser being than God, but perhaps greater, greater than humans, and perhaps something like an angel, right? Uh, it's, it's fine, they might think it's fine that Jesus would be an angelic type, but that made it so that faith in Christ alone for salvation was impossible, right? If he's just an angel. You, have to, you had to have the Jewish ceremonial law and the worship of angels, and we'll see that later on in this, uh, in this book. That's what people were believing. So Jesus could not be man. He could not be God, and he could not save. Does anyone see a problem with that? Yeah. It destroys everything. That we believe, right? So to, so to start believing some of those things, you can see the damage that that would cause within the church. And why would people even want to believe these false things about Jesus? Well, we talked about that a minute ago. If, if I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is in the scripture, then I don't have to obey what he says. I can, I can make him be whatever I want him to be, allowing me to live how I want to live. And Paul had just finished telling the church that As believers, remember, they had been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So what does Paul say then about who Jesus is? Let's read that again here, starting in verse 15. Who is Jesus? And that's what's being referenced here when Paul says he, okay? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. That's a lot about who he is and what he has done. And we're not even done with it yet. Right? There's there's eight things that we see in this. Eight he is statements. Even if the words he is aren't before them, there's eight things that we see that Jesus is 
um, in this section of Scripture. And those eight things that we can see about Jesus here, here's a quick list of them. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's before all things, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent, and he's fully God. We see all eight of those things in this. So now we'll see how many of these things we can get through for tonight. Uh, And if we must, we'll finish them up next week. So number one, the first thing that that he is, the image of the invisible God. The Greek word there is is icon, okay? In Matthew 22, 20, Jesus uses this word when he asks the Pharisees, whose likeness is on the denarius? And of course, it was Caesar, right? And he used the same word there. And we also get the word icon from that word, which refers to a statue or something like that. We see Jesus described similarly, similarly at the opening of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 1.3, when it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Bible says, no one can see God and live. Exodus 33.20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But in Christ, God has given us a view of Himself, Right? People saw Jesus. He was God in the flesh. He manifested himself in human form and that was able to be seen. But this was not about the way God looked physically. That's not what's being talked about here. Jesus was the exact imprint of his nature. It's not about did he have a beard or long hair or any of that. Okay. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God and we are created in God's image, what's the difference? How are we different? How is Jesus different from us? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God and we are created in God's image, what's the difference? Okay, we're created and he's not, yeah? And we are, we are not his image perfectly, okay? We are not his image morally because we're sinners. We're not his image in essence because he has what are called his incommunicable attributes, So let's talk about that for a second. What is an example of some of God's incommunicable attributes? That is, those things we do not possess as God's image bearers because to possess them would make us God. What are are some of those attributes? Whoa, okay. What was that? Everywhere. Everywhere. Omnipresent. He's perfect. Okay, yeah. Okay, all-knowing. Omniscient. What else? I heard other ones. Hmm. I don't know if I've ever heard that one. Relentless mercy <laughs> as, as one of his... Yeah, we have that, I think, right? Omnipotent. Oh, no, you didn't say that one. You said something else. Omniscient, yeah. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Perfect love. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking perfection, you could put anything after the word perfect for God, and, and that, would be, that would describe him. There are others. Um, his transcendence, his sovereignty. We are not sovereign. God is. His immutability. He is unchanging. That is not us. These are things, his self-existence. Is anyone here self-existent? No. (laughs) These are things that, these are incommunicable, that's a hard one to say, attributes 
of God. We are his image bearers, but we are not the exact imprint of his nature. That is Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God. He is the image of God. We are created in that image. We have rational thought, we have intellect, we have emotion, etc. You name them. Um, we have those because those are who God is. But again, He is perfect in all of those, and we are not. Jesus is the exact imprint. He is God. That's our first He is statement. He's the image of the invisible God. The second one is the firstborn from all, firstborn of all creation. Okay, and groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and others would use this verse to explain why they believe Jesus to be a created being. Okay? Um, but that is not true. We know that's not true. Uh, the Greek word here is prototokos, which does mean firstborn. Uh, but as in other parts of Scripture, the word doesn't always mean firstborn in a chronological order or even in terms of physical birth. This when this language is used here, this is about rank or position. And this is who Jesus is in his position as compared to everything, as compared to all creation. He is the one in position to receive the inheritance. And in this context, being called the firstborn is an expression of Jesus being the one to whom everything belongs. Okay? It's not a statement that Jesus was a created thing born before anything else. That's not what is being talked about here. This is about his position of preeminence above everything, above everyone, of all creation. It's about um, position. It's to whom the birthright goes. You know, in the Scripture, the, the eldest, the firstborn, would receive the inheritance. And we see several times throughout the Scriptures that God makes not the firstborn, the firstborn, right? The second one born ends up being the firstborn in the sense of position. We see it over and over in the Scriptures, and that's what's being described here. And this is who Jesus is. He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, this verse goes on to say, and to prove the idea that Jesus is uh, a creative, created being cannot be true. Okay? We just talked about that. He's not a created being. This verse helps us understand that that cannot true. It refutes that teaching about Jesus. It gives proofs. So let's look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This verse is Paul's way of covering every base that there is for created things. There's nothing left out. Literally everything ever created, no matter on, in heaven or on earth, was created by Jesus Christ. So where's the contradiction in saying that Jesus was a created being and that he created everything. What's the contradiction there? What's that? <laughs> can't create yourself? Right. Yeah, you can't be both. Right. Both things cannot be true. So when you're dealing with the false teaching that Jesus is a created being, how do you reconcile Scripture with that? You can't. He's either pre-existing everything so that he could make everything, or he was created and we cannot believe what the Bible says about him. If saying all things, that's what Paul says, all things, if that wasn't enough, he goes on 
with um, where these things can be found in heaven and on earth. So, so he's covering everywhere created things could be. And if someone thought about being clever and suggesting there might be something we can't see uh, that was created maybe by someone else, Paul covers that as well. He says things visible and invisible. There is nothing left out that wasn't created through Jesus Christ. Not even any ruler or throne or dominion or authority. And that, that language is thrown in there because for the people at the time, they understood that when someone was a king, they had absolute authority. No one could question them. Whatever they said went. And so to, to put somebody above that is saying something. They, they got the meaning of that. Jesus is exalted above them. He created them. He put them in the positions they're in. This includes the angels, which makes, again, this false teaching, a mistaken belief that Jesus was just an angel, impossible. Okay? The, the author of Hebrews makes a strong distinction between Jesus and the angels. In Hebrews 1, 6-8, says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, what? O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here we have the author of Hebrews identifying Jesus as God, putting him above everything, including angels. So for those that might want to put him as an angel, uh, he is exalted far above angels. Angels worship him. In Ephesians 1, 21, Paul says that Jesus is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So not only are these things true, but they are true now and they are true forever. This will never stop being true about Jesus. So there will never be anything or anyone that will rise and be higher than Jesus. Let's move to verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, here we see our next he is statement about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, this goes along with creating all things, because if Jesus were created, he could not have been before all things. Some of these truths about Jesus are very similar, and and ultimately have the same results or, or cause us to come to the same conclusion about Jesus. He could not be a created being because he was there before. He was before all things. And in him, we see there, in him, all things also hold together. Back to Hebrews 1.3, it says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's covered under the phrase, in him all things hold together? What, what does he cover there? All things, right? Nothing's left out. All things, everything. The placement of the earth, the sun, the planets, the weather, your life, your death, your body, every atom, every molecule, everything. Have you ever thought about the fact that the heavens and the earth are held together? What does is, what is the fact that he holds all things together imply? 
If he didn't, they wouldn't, right? Isn't that amazing? God didn't just create everything. He's holding it together. And if he's not, it's done. It's falling apart. If he wasn't holding it together, it would fall apart. Jesus didn't just create everything and then leave it. He's actively holding everything together, keeping everything from falling apart and burning up, etc. Let's look at some examples from the Scriptures. Psalm 3, 5. The psalmist acknowledges, I lay down and sleep, or I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says that Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, we really need sustaining with that one. Praise God that he does. Isaiah 46, 9-10, we see God saying, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We can see every one of God's attributes actively involved in this truth about Jesus, that Jesus holds all things together. We see every attribute, every incommunicable attribute of God is active in that statement. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so our fourth he is statement is he is the head of the body, the church. And looking back at Ephesians 1, uh, that passage we talked about a minute ago, verses 22 and 23, Paul continues by saying, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, besides being called the church, what are some other biblical words used to describe Christians, such as a flock? What are some other other ways the church is described? The bride, okay? The body as believers, okay? Children, as saints, kingdom of priests, as, as a family, right? The family of God. The church is described as a vineyard, as a building. As the head of the church, what does he do? What does Jesus do as the head of the church? Holds everything together. <laughs> hey, you're paying attention. <laughs> Well, let's look at a couple examples here about this, too. 1 Corinthians 12. Go there. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. And this section here is talking about the church and what's going on in the church. But here in verses 4 through 6, it describes what's going on here. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. This is what he does as the head of the church. And then you bump down to uh, verses 12 through 20 in that same chapter. 
It says, for just as the body is one and his many members and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God is arranging the members in the body as he chooses. He gives gifts. He arranges the members of the body. He holds the church together. Christ is the head of the church. How are we doing on time? I'm trying to get used to this new time. Okay. Got a little bit more time. Um, So can people just, can any group of people just get together, sing some songs and read from a book and call themselves Christians? Can, Can they call themselves the church? The church is his body. He is the head. He dictates what the church is and who's in it. He brings the people into the church. And no group functioning outside of what the Bible says the church is can be called the church. Right? If the people are, are unregenerate, it cannot be called the church. If Christ is not the head, it cannot be called the church. The church is his. It came from him. He came up with the concept. He made the people who are his church. He died for his church. He made his church alive through regeneration and the new birth. He gave his church gifts, as we just saw in the scriptures. He empowers the members of his church. He told his church how to be his church in the world. He leads his church, and he's coming back for his church. Now, how does all of that sometimes conflict with how the church functions or behaves? Well, we, we do our own thing, and we still try to call it the church. There are many groups of people who gather and call themselves a church and are far from what the Bible describes as the church. We can't do that. We, people try to make it, the church better. You know, They're not satisfied with, with what God says the church is, so they try to improve on it. That doesn't work out well. Let's look at our fifth He is statement. He is the beginning. We're told in verse 18, He is the beginning. In other words, he's the source. Nobody else came up with this. Nobody else made it happen. Nobody else is able to sustain it, like we talked about. Nobody else has the right to do anything different with it or make it something that it's not meant to be. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It started with him. It came through him. And it is for him as we saw in verse 16. Next one, he is the firstborn from the dead. It says he is the firstborn from the dead. If you think about it, we know, we know what that means. He was resurrected after his death on the cross, 
never to die again. That's what that means. Firstborn from the dead, resurrected from death to life, never to die again. It doesn't mean that Jesus was born again. Some people believe and teach that Jesus was born again or had to be born again. We are the ones that have to be born again. It's something that Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in Reading teaches. In one of his sermons back in 2009, he said, Did you know that Jesus was born again? I asked the first service and they said, No, but I will show it. It's in the Bible. He had to be. He became sin. And he went on to try to explain his bad Christology by reading other passages of Scripture out of context to fit his teaching. But what is he getting wrong here when he gives the reason for his teaching is that Jesus became sin? Jesus, Jesus did become sin. The Scripture tells us he became sin for us, right? But he was not a sinner in his own flesh. He did not sin. He took our sin upon himself. He did not sin. Our sin was imputed to him, placed on him. He did not sin himself, and therefore he had no need, like you and I, to be born again. We need to become a new creation. Jesus didn't need to become a new creation. He needed to be resurrected from the dead, and he was. But he did not need to be a new creation. This is a false teaching that Jesus had to be born again. A lot of people teach it. Bill Johnson teaches it. Creflo Dollar teaches it. Joyce Meyer has taught it. Um, lots of people teach this, and it's not true. Okay, Jesus did not have to be born again. What would that mean if Jesus had to be born again? That what? That he wasn't perfect. Becoming sin doesn't mean that he sinned. When the Scripture says that he became sin for us, he took our place, took the penalty of sin on our behalf, right? He became the object of God's wrath placed on sin, but he did not sin. It's very important. He what? Absolutely. He would be just like the Jewish priests of old if he was a sinner, he would not be able to atone for our sins because they had to atone for their own sin and then atone for the sin of the people. And they had to do it over and over and over. And Jesus did not. He was not a sinner. He did not need to be born again. He's the firstborn from the dead. The real meaning of that is that Jesus died, he rose from the dead, never to die again. He's the firstborn in that sense. Everyone after that, every believer who comes to faith in Christ who is born again, like you and I are, we never die again. This is in a spiritual sense. Okay, we all still physically die. But when we are in Christ, we live forever. Never to die again. We are out of time. We are almost done with all these points. But we'll have to pick it up next time with his preeminence. And then the last one, which is he is fully God. So let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you, Lord, uh, for so many truths about who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that we would remember these, that we would be able to refute false teaching about Jesus. 
or that we would just at the least remember to go to Colossians 1. If someone's attacking who Jesus is, let's take them to Colossians 1 and show them from your word what is true. And we can't convince them, Lord. You would have to change their hearts and open their eyes to see the truth. And we are so grateful, Father, and humbled that you have seen fit to open our eyes to see who Jesus is and that you have called us to faith in him. We're so grateful for the salvation that is found in him alone. You are a mighty God, Lord, and we thank you that you are eternal. Christ is eternal. He's before all things. These are amazing truths, Lord. We want to praise you each day. Help us help these things to come to our minds, Lord. Let's acknowledge you each day in these ways. Acknowledge you for your incommunicable attributes, those things that make you God. And we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that Christ humbled himself to death, even death on a cross for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.